The Gist is brought to you by Casper, the risk-free online retailer of premium mattresses. Try sleeping on an American-made Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash the gist. It's Thursday, October 30th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. October 30th. That means tomorrow's Halloween. All those ghosts and ghouls, witches, Power Rangers. Please don't say goblins. There are no goblins. You know my thing. Right now, I'm on Google News. Look at these headlines for ghosts and goblins. The Olympia Chamber Orchestra will fit right into the season with the program Ghosts and Goblins or the Hilton Head Island Packet. I subscribe to the packet, not in the mail, but by packet, of Ghosts and Goblins. The Catskill Daily Mail. Ghosts and Goblins prowl the streets. And here now, WFMY Greensboro. Ah, uh, the air is getting colder, days getting shorter, and the Ghosts and Goblins are making themselves at home. And a little variation on that, KATL. Five ways to keep your ghouls and goblins safe this Halloween. I don't know where KATL was. It says Arc Latex. I'm like, oh, is that maybe costume related? Latex? No, it's Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas. So that's where KATL is. But the point is there are no goblins. And the challenge still stands. If tomorrow a goblin comes to your door and you can document said goblin, and it has to be a goblin, not some other creepy dude, green dude, short dude with pointy teeth, an actual self-identified goblin. What are you, little boy? I'm a goblin. We need that. I'll take your word on the testimony. But if you could document a goblin where the kid says he's a goblin, you win. You win the spot a goblin prize. That's on Facebook.com slash SlateGist. Facebook.com slash SlateGist. Or email us at the end of the show. Today on the show, in the spiel, the bully of American politics. And I talk with Dan Gilroy. He's the director of the new Jake Gyllenhaal movie, Nightcrawler. Great movie. And as I think you'll hear, pretty great discussion. Excuse me, sir. I'm looking for a job. I'm a hard worker. I set high goals. My motto is, if you want to win the lottery, you have to make the money to buy a ticket. So what do you say? I could start tomorrow, or even why not tonight? No. I'm not hiring. When we meet Lou Bloom, he's stealing copper and wire in the new film called Nightcrawler. Eventually, he finds his calling in what else? TV news. Morning news. If it bleeds, it leads. Are you currently hiring? The people who do what he does for a living, which is essentially listen to the police scanner, go to where the action is, and film people who are either on fire or just engaged in a shootout or just engaged in a car crash, they call themselves stringers. But another word for them is Nightcrawlers. The new film opens Friday, October 31st. It's director, Dan Gilroy. I think this is your first direct, this is your I, directorial I debut. A, I was a virgin. I guess I'm a yes. I'm a, yeah. I'm a new director. Which, and you wrote The Born Legacy. And I co-wrote The Born Legacy with your brother, brother Tony. Who, so for a film that's based on the visual, that where the visuals are great, kind of a challenge for the, a first-time director, even though you know your way around narrative really well. Yeah, it was a challenge. I think the biggest fear that I had was that I was working with people who are extraordinarily talented, who are professionals, and one of them was Robert Ellswit, the Academy Award-winning cinematographer. So when Robert signed on to do the film, I, I took a crash course in lenses and, and every aspect of cinematography that I could get. But at the same time, 
it, it was nerve-wracking to work with him. And, and the look of the film was something that we crafted together in the sense that we wanted Los Angeles to look physically beautiful. Yeah. We're both in L.A. Very noirish. Lots of blacks. Yeah, a lot of, of blacks. And I think we both felt that there was a wild, un, there is a wild, untamed quality Los Angeles that you don't often see in films. But we were much more interested in mountains and areas that are undeveloped and, 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 and mountain roads rather than downtown and cement and freeways. Yeah, and a great thing about this is that they drive really fast in Los Angeles, but it's plausible because a lot of the driving happens at 3 o'clock in the morning. And we is... were the beneficiaries of that because we were shooting at night. It's very much like a movie set that's closed down waiting for the next day shooting. Yeah. It's empty. But it's all lit mm-hmm. up, and the neons give it a great glow. Everything is lit up. Yeah. It's just there's no people. So speaking of the visual, Jake Gyllenhaal, your star, he lost a lot of weight for the role. This is his first really true embrace of creepy. I kind of loathe the phrase creepy, yet that's what he is. He's off-putting. He's probably a sociopath. He definitely doesn't connect with people. Although at one point he wonders, is it that I don't connect with people or just hate them? But anyway, tell me how important was uh, tweaking the look that we know Jake Gyllenhaal, tweaking that. How important was that in defining his character? Well, it was something that was not in the script. And in talking to Jake and rehearsing several months before, Jake I had always imagined Lou as a nocturnal predator who came out of the hills at night to feed, and Jake came up with the idea that he was his symbol, symbolic totem animal was going to be a coyote, yeah. lean and hungry. So Jake said, listen, I'd like to lose some weight. And I thought it was a great idea. And, and, and 28 pounds later, you know, two days before shooting, we're doing a screen test, and here's Jake. It looks totally radically different. <clears throat> it was a little bit scary to see him looking that way. It all makes sense now when you watch it, but it was a very bold choice on his part. He's a fearless actor, and I thought what his weight loss gave us was not just the physical transformation and the hollow cheeks and the sunken eyes, which have their own profound effect. When I watch the film repeatedly now, what comes through for me is that there's uh, an energy of hunger because literally every frame that you're looking at, Jake is is starving himself. He's not like getting the calories he needs for that day. And there's this unspoken hunger that's coming through his eyes and his being, and it's as if he's ready to consume not just food, but ideas and people. And if he was a a leader, he'd consume other countries. It's just no end to his voracious appetite. And it was a very effective, very wise choice on his part. And also, he's in physical danger a lot, and looking like that makes him, well, it doesn't play as vulnerable, but you see that maybe he's going to react because he's in such a unpowerful place physically. He, it's funny, he's, he's, he's not physically powerful, but, but he is a physically powerful human being, even at 168 pounds, which he was at. And I believe in times in the film when he needs to project some sort of sense of physical aggressiveness, mm-hmm. I, I, it's very credible to me. Particularly yeah. when he's sitting in the car with his partner, Rick, you actually feel like the, the other character's in mortal danger. Or when he's talking with Rene Russo and he's right. being scary and he's being a little inappropriate, but you feel through Rene's character, oh, what is this guy getting at? Yeah, no, because there's obviously the the the, the impl- impl- implication that they're having a sexual relationship, which we never really see. It, you get the sense from what you know about Lou that it's probably it's probably rather aggressive and, and rather dark. And, and yeah, Rene's face, I think, very much registers either the fear or the attraction to that. Did you have a no-blink rule with him? There are some scenes he blinks, but not many. It's very interesting you bring that up. I never really noticed on the monitor how little he was blinking. It was only when I was in post with my brother John, who's the editor, and we're a couple weeks in, and John said, do you realize he's never blinking? And he's- I mean, there are shots. There is, like, maybe at one point, I forget the scene, there's, like, a 40-second shot just on him. He blinks once there. Yeah. But there's so many shots where, and his eyes, because he's so gaunt, the eyes are so big. And I've asked Jake about that, and he said it was not something he was consciously doing. But when you're, when you're, when you're starving yourself, you're, I guess your body goes over to a different form of energy called ketosis. Mm-hmm. And it, it, Jake described it was like a hyper energy. And, and he just felt, didn't feel the need to blink. It was just, he was just uh, on a different wavelength. 
Wow. Um, so do you see this movie as fitting in with a movie like Network or a movie like Broadcast News, a criticism of the news industry? Because it, it's not that it isn't. That's the genre. But I think at this point, I think this is smart of you. Like, we got the message that right. news is a swamp. You don't have to establish that. You don't have to prove that. You could take that as a given. And I think that works. Yeah, I think I think Network has its an, an echo in our film in the sense that Network captured the moment in which news departments had to make a profit. And at that point, news became entertainment. So we have echoes of that. Broadcast news I love. It's certainly about journalism. But I agree with you. We didn't want to lean too heavily into any sort of revealing a commentary or a narrative that's already known by most of the public. The, the fear is what's selling. And, and, and what I think what we brought to the table was the more nuanced narrative that you find in Los Angeles local news, which is it's urban crime creeping into the suburbs that specifically is being sold. So, I, I, again, I didn't feel that was so earth-shatteringly newsworthy that we needed to lean into it. I feel the film is as much a character study of somebody moving through a larger landscape, a larger economic landscape that goes beyond journalism. It extends to, I think, all businesses and corners of our world in which the bottom line ultimately is the only thing that's ruling the day. And I, I think if Lou understands anything, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, it's that money is the only thing ultimately that's relevant increasingly in this world, and he's left any humanity behind. Yeah. So... We loathe him. We should loathe him. But it's just either the way human beings work or the way film works that we're invested. We get invested even with bad people. And he's not even that charismatic guy. He's he's compelling in a way, but he's not a Tony Soprano type antihero. He's a different kind of antihero. Yet we're always invested. Is that a function of things you put in the screenplay, just our interest in the progression of human beings? Is that almost an indictment or supposed to be an indictment of us, the viewer, that we care to see him progress, for instance, professionally? That was part of the, the elemental design in the sense that I approached it as a success story. I approached it as the story of a young man who's looking for work, and I probably, from a spoiler, shouldn't say what happens, but he, he goes off on a journey. And at the end, I didn't want people to look back and say, oh, I understand what this movie is. This is a movie about a sociopath or a psychopath. That, to me, was too reductive. I was hoping that people would make the leap, and they seem to be doing it, that they say, oh, the problem perhaps isn't Lewis. It's the world that creates a character like this and rewards this character. So I always was hoping in the script and when I was writing it, trying to keep a thread of connection between the character and the audience. What Jake did so well is Jake took that and brought a charisma and an affability and an earnestness to the character that made him human. Yeah. And if Jake were here talking, what Jake would be talking about is, 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 is our perpetual exploration of trying to find an inner human landscape for the character. So people could look at him and go, I'm like him. Right. I'm not dissimilar to him in some ways. From an acting perspective, did he try to keep from being a fun, laid-back guy on the set to perpetuate this feeling of uneasiness or creepiness that he was trying to get from the scene? You know, Jake is extraordinarily disciplined and done a tremendous amount of work, but I don't see him as a classic method actor in the sense that in between scenes he was trying to stay in character. What I did notice is, is that there was a consistent sense of odd, tense energy because he was literally starving. The physical was the dictating physical, he so He was much, running yeah. or biking 10 or 15 miles to the set, working 12 hours, and then running and biking back to keep his weight off, and he wasn't eating enough food. And a, a tremendous tension built up, I think, inside of him from that. From a film writing perspective, do you have to put fewer obstacles in front of an anti-hero? I mean, if this was a story of a plucky young journalist who we were rooting for, maybe the things in his or her way would seem more insurmountable. Now, it's not that he had this easy ride. There's definitely an arc. But 
when you're writing for an anti-hero, do you have to put you know fewer things in his way? The audience isn't actually rooting for him to overcome. It's obstacles. such an interesting thing. I've never written an anti-hero before, and the classic arc of a character is somebody who has some flaws or, or deficiencies that the world compliments them and they grow at the end of the film and they change. When you have an anti-hero like Lou, he doesn't change. There is no arc to the character. And what I, what I started to equate it with, it started to feel like the bow of a ship. He was, he was cutting through the world. And whereas in a classic film, the character is bending around the world and the world is transforming them. In this film with the anti-hero, the world is always bending around the anti-hero. It's like the world is just morphing and melding around him. And what I noticed is the anti-hero is holding up a mirror because people are bending. They're making moral decisions that they don't normally make. They're crossing boundaries and lines. So the anti-hero becomes almost a mirror to society. It's a great device to explore thematic and other elements that you want to get out in a story. And it's a great device in TV. I mean, this is like the era of the anti-hero on TV, Walter White and Tony Soprano and a lot of the characters from The Wire. But even with a movie like yours that's ambitious and challenges the audience, there's still that idea of, well, what about likability? Did you have to deal with that at all along the way, shopping it, getting it made? No, and it's unusual because in almost every other scenario when you've been hired to write something or work on something, affability and likability is the character. We don't like the character. Will you change that? No, we. Uh, I, the script was, was shot as it was written because people liked the script and responded to it and because Jake was such an advocate for it and because we made it for a budget of around $8 million, mm-hmm. there was not this tremendous commercial pressure to, to change the script. And I think everybody understood, and I always tried to explain it to them, that, that our aim was to make a character that you did like and connect to. We were never going to have a character with the hint of a lobotomy scar on his head yeah. or some sort of robotic way of speaking. I was always talking to the financiers and the investors prior to the shooting of, of look, this is going to be an, a personable, earnest, polite, respectful, smiling young man. Jake brought all of those qualities to life. So I want to talk about your uh, female star, Renee Russo. She's your wife? She is my wife. You guys have been married for how long? 21 years. You know what's funny about Renee Russo? is that she always plays opposite a male who's her age, like Costner and Tim Tin yes. Cup and Mel Gibson. And she might even be, you know, a year older than some of these guys I'm listing. Yeah. So she has that quality of sophistication. Yeah. She's not exactly the doe-eyed ingenue. Nope. And here she's playing a woman who's her age, and that's written into the script. Right. And that seems important. I was very intrigued with the idea that Jake, who's literally... 25 years, 30 years younger than her, that in the narrative, he's attracted to her and wants to have a relationship with her. I thought it was unusual and utterly credible because in society, it's so common for a man of 60 or 70 to have a 25 or 30-year-old girlfriend. And yet somehow... People look askance when a woman at 60 has a, as a, as a, as a boyfriend who's 30. It's almost scandalous, which is absurd. I find it not only to be common, I find it to be understandable. I think I, I've, I've always been attracted to older women. I just, I'm, I'm just <laughs> I have been. I mean, honestly, I think many men are. And, and so I was really— Well, luckily, if you stay married to Renee for 30 years, you got one. Yeah, I got yeah. one. There you go. I've, I've, I've achieved the dream. <laughs> and, uh, but Jake's character, I think, legitimately is wants a relationship with a woman who's strong and smart and attractive. I just was very intrigued with that as, as something you don't normally see. She hadn't been in a movie in a few years. Was this a situation where you had to convince her or where she was like finally a role that is appropriate and good for me? You know, you talk about the film she did with these other actors. She was on a role where she probably did 15, 16 films in a row. And she played and like hundred million dollar gross. Yeah, films, huge. It's incredible. That. And she got to a point, I think, where it's like I feel like I'm playing similar parts. And so when I wrote the script for her and I gave it to her, it didn't take much convincing because it was a part she had not played before. We collaborate on, on a lot of different 
different levels. She helps me with my scripts, reading them from an actor's standpoint. So it was not difficult once she read the script to want for her to want to do it. Now, you, you, we talked about the likability. Okay, there's not likability, but there's excitement, and that's compelling. If we're excited by the stuff that Lou is filming and it's gory stuff and grisly stuff, are we complicit? You know, this is the thing that's always raised. And then I'll lay another thing on it. Okay, if we're complicit at all, you're the one who made it exciting. Are you complicit? Our film is certainly an indictment of local television news and perhaps on a larger level of news in general. And I was hoping that people at the end of the film would say, well, as much as it's an indictment, I'm the one who watches the images. I do tune in when there's a car chase and somebody's going 80 miles an hour. I do tune in when there's a, a live bank robbery because I'm waiting to see the shootout at the end. I would like people to make that connection and say they are. it's a larger equation in which we are all a part of. Um, in terms of are we selling this? Yeah, in some ways, in some ways we, we, are, we are definitely playing to the lurid, voyeuristic nature of the audience because in, even in the way we shot it, we often were playing scenes. The most graphic lurid images in our film play off the viewfinder mm-hmm. on the cameras. We never show it full frame. And the reason we showed in the viewfinders is we wanted the audience to be leaning in going, what's on that little screen and why aren't they making it bigger? We wanted that subconscious desire to come up and awaken and say, why aren't they showing these images in a larger way? I want to see. Nightcrawler is the film. Dan Gilroy is the writer and the director. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Mattresses. You know, for a thing that is supposed to be there and comfort us and to give us relief and succor, a lot of the phrases associated with mattresses are very negative phrases. In fact, all of them. The mafia, they go to the mattresses. When there is a war, family against family, going to the mattresses. That's not a very positive connotation. There's mattress on the highway, mattresses out on the 10, going to be backed up for 20 minutes. And think about why. Think about what mattresses connote. A guy in a showroom going, lie down on this. You take four minutes. You say, yeah, I guess that's all right. I mean, I am lying down. That feels better than standing up. And then that guy will try to sell you a mattress with a huge markup, like $1,500. Casper mattresses take all of this and stand it on its head. And if you're going to stand on your head, I recommend a Casper mattress. They're extremely affordably priced. They're obsessively engineered. So they have a couple types of technology, latex foam and memory foam. Casper also has a risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Get $50 towards any mattress by visiting casper.com slash the gist and using the promo code the gist. And now the spiel. Bully for you. Dateline, Belmar, New Jersey. The state's governor, Chris Christie, is talking, and an activist is interrupting. Chris Christie is having none of it. Yeah, you do yours too, buddy. So You bring the bellicosity, uh, he'll bring the truculence. You bring the contentiousness, he'll bring the antagonism. You put one of his in the hospital, he'll put one of yours in a traffic jam in Fort Lee. That's the Jersey way, and that's how you get Capone. Sorry, Christie, right, got it mixed up. So this protester, he's a Sandy activist, he's holding a sign that says, finish the job. He's critical of the state and federal response to cleanup efforts after Sandy. And I wouldn't know any of this except Chris Christie once again proves that any lectern to which he's assigned can be transformed into a bully pulpit. I'd be more than happy to have a debate with you anytime you like, guy, because somebody like you who doesn't know a damn thing about what you're talking about except to stand up and show off when the cameras are here. I've been here when the cameras aren't here, buddy, and done the work. I've been here when the cameras weren't here and did the work. So... 
Now, Christie always explains or excuses his behavior as authenticity or being myself or you know me or you get it straight with me. And that's all true. But at some point, it becomes a flaw. And I suggest yesterday was maybe that point. Maybe that point redux. And maybe that habit is something that should be addressed instead of embraced. It's been 23 months since then when all you've been doing is flapping your mouth and not doing anything. So listen, sit down and shut up. Can you imagine if this tactic was used by other politicians, other great Republicans, these words, this amount of anger, even used by the greatest Republican? Yes, I am speaking of Bill Frist. No, Abraham Lincoln. So let's think back to that one time. Well, this is always quoted as Lincoln's wisdom. Lincoln's relationship with the Bible gets quoted recently. Obama's talked about it. Palin's talked about it. And it comes from a book called Six Months in the White House with Abraham Lincoln. It's actually written by a guy named Francis Carpenter, who was in the White House to paint Lincoln and Lincoln's family's portrait. And Carpenter tells this story. No nobler reply ever fell from the lips of a ruler than that uttered by President Lincoln in response to the clergyman who ventured to say in his presence that he hoped, quote, the Lord was on our side. I'm not at all concerned about that, replied Mr. Lincoln, for I know that the Lord is always on the side of the right, but it is my constant anxiety and prayer that I and this nation should be on the Lord's side, right? This gets distilled to, I'm not worried about if we're on the side of God, just hope God's on our side. But imagine if Lincoln had added, and I've said my piece, no, I, that's my, shut up. You need to shut up. I don't care if you're a clergyman. Sit down, idiot. And let's go to Thursday, November 19th. They're dedicating the Soldiers National Cemetery, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. There, in between a hymn and a dirge in the program is the line, dedicatory remarks by the President of the United States. These would be the 10 sentences that Lincoln would deliver, known as the Gettysburg Address. Of course, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth from this continent a new nation. Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war. But then what if as Lincoln was saying this, he saw this guy, this guy out there in the third row who was tisk tisking and shaking his head. Maybe this guy, I mean, who knows? It's lost to history. They don't even know where the speech was actually given, the actual precise location. Maybe this guy said something. Maybe this guy heckled Lincoln. What if the Gettysburg Address had ended like this? That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. All right, buddy, I've seen enough you. Yeah, you with the mutton chops. No, the next guy with the mutton. Okay, fourth row. See that one guy without mutton chops? Two guys over from him. To the le- my left, that guy. You're an idiot. I didn't see you at Vicksburg. I didn't see you at Chancellor's. All right, fine. I didn't see you at Antietam. That's right. Hasn't happened yet. No, I'm talking about the battle, not the peace. You, you need to shut down and stop flapping your mutton chops, buddy. That's right. Booyah. I'm Lincoln. I'm like 
this guy's a total idiot, right? I'm the president, man. <laughs> Am I right? Also, teachers unions, what's up with them? I don't know. Might have sullied his legacy. What? I'm on the five? I can't get the t- Hamilton's on the ten? Not even a president. The guy's an idiot. I'm on the penny? Who spends a penny? Jeffrey, I don't know what he was doing in high school. I was playing baseball. I don't know what he was doing. I invented baseball. I'm Lincoln. Idiot. And that's it for today's show. You know, I think a lot of tension with the staff today. Like, for instance, Andrea Salenzi, the Just producer, she does have to listen to me tell all my stories. I, I thought she liked it, or at least I thought she was okay knowing that that's her job. I thought so. Then she told me this. I, I sat here and listened to your story and your position, excuse me, without interrupting you. If you decide what you want to do is put on a show today, let me tell you something. I can go back and forth with you as much as you want. Joel Meyer, managing producer of podcasts, is such a cute little baby. And I asked, where are you going to send him to preschool? He answered. First off, it's none of your business. I don't ask you where you send your kids to school. Don't bother me about where I send mine. Okay, on to Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, uses sometimes confrontational tones with me. You must be the thinnest skinned guy in America because you think that's a confrontational tone. Then, you know, you should really see me when I'm pissed. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email at slate.com slash just email or the app Yo, which you download and sign up to podcast. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. There is a picture of a goblin. It is an adult last year on Halloween. I want current kid goblins this year. The Goblin Documentation Project is underway. Email us at thegist at slate.com. You know, all I try to do here is have some giggles and put on a show. Who could object to that? If what you want to do is put on a show and giggle every time I talk, well, then I have no interest in answering your question. Well, in any case, thanks for... What's that What's that word I use? Listen, pa- hey, listen, pal. That's right. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, the last socially acceptable form of prejudice, it's discriminating against people with different political beliefs. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.